Good morning. We are turning in our Bibles to Psalms. And Psalm 23 is found in the midst of a grouping of five kingship psalms, Psalms 20 through 24. And what's interesting is that there is a title in the Middle East to describe one who is the overseer of a nation. He'd be known as the shepherd king. Because in the Near East, you see, the ancient Near East, most of the people were in agrarian or nomadic settings. And the kings, the rulers of the people, the leaders of the people, were by and large shepherds. But what made their distinctive known throughout the region is that they would be known by the title as shepherd kings. Now, David, of course, who was founded in the pastures of Bethlehem as he was tending his sheep would be anointed by Samuel to become king of Israel. And as the king of Israel, he would be the, what I will describe this morning as the under-shepherd king. And Yahweh, his sovereign God, Lord, would be the ultimate shepherd king. So what we need to understand now is the idea of the shepherd king and how this passage relates to Psalms 20 through 24 and has direct bearing upon the way in which you and I live our lives. This is a beloved psalm. It's a psalm that people have through the years turned to, particularly when they are facing in the latter days of their lives. But I think it's um, meant to be much more than simply a passage that is directly tied to funerals because you will find, as we'll cover next week, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Now, David most likely is penning his thoughts, fleeing his son, Absalom. Absalom is now a threat. David is finding himself to be, in the eyes of the people, dethroned. And now he is back in the very wilderness where he had been tending sheep. Most likely, then, he is in a very reflective stage where he's thinking seriously about the way in which he, David, the under-shepherd king, relates to Yahweh, Lord his sovereign cosmic shepherd king, grappling with, now, where do I fit into God's plan, God's purposes, in light of the promise that God has given David, that it would be from David that there would be what we and I, you and I know as, a, as an eternal kingdom, found, of course, in Jesus Christ. So now, with that as our background, love to read to you Psalm 23. I'll read down through verse 6. Though I don't think we're going to get much past verse 3 this morning, okay? Well, now, here you and I, with the superscription, Psalm of David, we are introduced with these words. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. 
He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So you see the certainty now in David's heart. God has already made the promise of an everlasting eternal kingdom. And therefore, David is able to talk about surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And the ultimate David still to come, of course, is the one raised from the grave, Jesus Christ. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Father, we pray right now for the students and all the workers with them that are returning in the moments to come from Green Bay. This annual event is so special to the youth group of this congregation. I pray that in a very unique, distinctive way, you'll speak to hearts and there will have there will be an extraordinary ripple effect throughout the county of young adults that are, that are on fire for Jesus Christ. They're going to be tired, but they're going to be engaged with you. And we're thankful for them and for those that gave of their weekend to minister to their needs. Father, thank you for the way in which you work. You open our eyes to things that perhaps we would otherwise overlook and ponder things that the rest of society rushes past. But what we do now is to invest time in your word, these various services. Minister to those that are now checking in online. The illness seems to be growing throughout the region. Protect God direct. And I pray that in the hours and days and weeks to come as the study is being pondered and processed, people are going deep into your word and seeing how the metaphor of the shepherd and sheep relates to modern day life. So Father, these moments are important. Warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wheels, so again, now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. I'm going to pray these things still again now in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd love to be able to revisit a painting that we have considered off and on through the course of years. And this is one that hangs in the library of this facility, also hangs over the piano in the living room back home. And it's a, it's a painting that was developed by Joseph Farquhart, and it depicts in an agrarian setting the way in which a shepherd relates to his sheep. 
All kinds of distinctives seem to leap out of this painting that you and I begin to explore together. Seems to be such that there's a loneliness to all of this. Notice that he's by himself. That there's a, there's a weight on his shoulders. He has come by himself to feed his flock. It's less than ideal settings. He's out in the cold. It's not the heart of the day. And here he is now, and will the sheep that he is tending to even be appreciative of what he's offering? He's bundled up. I wonder how tired he is. So he makes his way into the past year, and as you and I begin to explore the sheepfold, what you and I see is that you could easily begin to develop various subcultures among the sheep. Of course, there are those that are closest to the shepherd. They're waiting for the food. They are hungry and they want to be fed. There also, perhaps, is that sense of wanting to be close in proximity to the shepherd. Because one of the key distinctives of a shepherd is that he has such an extraordinary calming influence. He produces a sense of security among, among the flock. Yes, there are those closest to him, and they can't wait to be fed. Then there's the next grouping. They're out just a little bit further. Are they watching uh, those? Are they the middle adapters rather than the innovators? Are they, are they just waiting to see what happens before they themselves step forward and eat as well? Are they a little bit more apprehensive? Maybe they've already gone through this routine. They know just how much will be left for them. There's a third grouping. They're just a few, they're they're on the balcony, aren't they? They're they're further back, and they're they're watching. They're observing. I wonder, are they going to go start looking elsewhere for food? They're processing, and why is it? And what's going on up close and personal? And then, of course, there's that one. You you can spot him. He's, he's heading in a different direction altogether, you see. He seems indifferent. Maybe he's going to go scrounge for his own food rather than take the food that's offered by, by his good shepherd. And of course, there's that one off in the corner you can spot him, isolate it. Is he going to be the one uh, that the shepherd's going to have to go after and leave the 99 behind. This is a depiction in many ways of God's people. It's a depiction in many ways of our culture. It's a picture, if you will, of the way in which uh, people relate to the sovereign God who is described as the shepherd king in these verses. What I'm going to do with you this morning is to simply go verse by verse, most likely only get through verse 3, and we're going to start viewing verse 1 as simply the introduction to this song, the song of the shepherd, and then when we get to verses 2 and 3, we're going to be able to spot four reasons, four reasons why those who know the Lord as their shepherd 
are able to say, I shall not want. But we've got to start with first things. And so in verse 1, let's begin with verse the phrase, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I want you to see how this begins as we now turn to the text that appears on the screen. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Notice the word Lord, capitalized. It comes from the Hebrew word Yahweh. Notice where it is in the sentence. It does not begin with the phrase, I am in green pastures, I shall not want. In other words, what I want to be able to say to you at the very onset is that when you are reading this psalm, you're going to have to start with the provider rather than the provisions. He starts with Yahweh, Lord, and not the pastures. He puts first things first. I would argue that in the culture in which we find ourselves, in the global setting that we see unfolding day in, day out, there is an extraordinary unrest. There's this sense of, I'm in want, and I am not fulfilled, because they have not dealt with what I call first things. They are not dealing with the one being described here as a first priority, the preeminent one, Yahweh. So it does not begin with the pastures, therefore I shall not want. It begins with the Lord, he's my shepherd, I shall not want. David is making a statement here. And the statement is that he, David, the under-shepherd king of Israel, even in the midst of fleeing Absalom at this point, back where it all began, perhaps prone to want to say to himself, I was back here previous. Why am I going through the same things all over again? I dealt with this with Saul. Now I'm dealing with Absalom, and I'm back in the wilderness of life. But then perhaps he would find encouragement. Moses is tending sheep in the wilderness. And in Exodus of chapter 3, Moses says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? This is an educational moment in the wilderness of life. Who are you, God? The response from God to Moses, found in verse 14 of Exodus 3, is this. I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Notice that God did not begin with the phrase say this to the people of Israel. 
God said to Moses, first things, I am who I am. And what is the Hebrew word for I am? Yahweh. Which we translate in the English. Lord, capital L-O-R-D. Before God even got to his word, he started with his nature, his essence. Before he says to Moses, this is what you say, he began with, this is who I am. I would argue that the reason for the restlessness in our culture is that we have already forsaken first things not take into account the great I am, we need to start with where Moses found himself starting with God. Hearing the words, I am who I am. What's fascinating about that, in other words, from that burning bush in the wilderness experience of Moses, he immediately hears first things, Yahweh. Then he is, say to them, and tell them, Yahweh sent you. And Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, in the English version translation, carries with it the idea of the dynamic presence of God. Not the static presence of God. Not the passive sense of God. There is a dynamic presence where God is deeply involved with your life in the wilderness experiences, whether it be that Moses is going through, what David is going through, what you might be going through. And now David is saying, quoting Yogi Berra, it's deja vu all over again. I'm back in the wilderness. I fled here from, uh, from Saul. Now I'm fleeing from, from Absalom. But I understand something as an under-shepherd king to the shepherd king. I understand the wilderness. And I understand something about sheep. I've been prepped. God doesn't waste our experiences. God invests our experiences. We don't waste our experiences. We invest our experiences. But if you're going to invest wisely, you have to start with first things. Yahweh, Lord. Okay, you're on to the next phrase. The Lord is my shepherd. In the Hebrew, my is in the emphatic. What David needs to be able to say, and he's articulating Psalm 23 to people who are facing the upheavals of life, which he is at this point in his life experience, is that he is more than the shepherd king of Israel. He is my shepherd king. 
Now, this is an extraordinary thing. Because when David was anointed to become king over all of Israel, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, the people now quote what they had been told about the way in which God had designated David to be king, shepherd king. The Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. In other words, God was now saying to David, you will be my, the shepherd king for my people Israel. David, you are the under-shepherd king, while God is the cosmic shepherd king over all of the people. Now, shepherds, they provide, they protect, and they, they have a way of being able to make a statement regarding ownership. In the extraordinary book written by Philip Keller, a shepherd looks at Psalm 23. I'll read a few excerpts from it along the way in this brief study. But Keller, who had been a, a shepherd and then later a writer, a scientist, says, I recall quite clearly how in my first venture with sheep, the question of paying a price for my use was so terribly important. They belonged to me only by virtue of the fact I had paid hard cash for them. It was money earned by the blood, sweat, tears from my own body during the desperate grinding years of the Depression. And when I bought that first flock, I was buying them literally with my own body, which had been laid down with this day in mind. He would go on to say this. The day I bought my first 30 ewes, my neighbor and I sat on the dusty corral rails that enclosed the sheep pens and admired the choice, strong, well-bred ewes that had become mine. Turning to me, he handed me a large, sharp killing knife and remarked tersely, well, Philip, they are yours. Now you'll have to put your mark on them. I knew exactly what he meant. For you see, each shepherd has his own distinctive earmark, which he cuts into one of the ears of his sheep. What I want to say is that when you have put your faith and trust in the one described, and we'll get to that next week, the good shepherd Jesus, described in John 10. You have the markings of the shepherd on you. When you've put your faith and trust in Jesus and how you live your life for Christ, your good shepherd. The Lord is my, it's in the emphatic in the Hebrew, shepherd. Now we see how this relates, this passage, to the Psalm 20 through 24 king passages. Because you are now dealing with the shepherd king of Israel. It is only, it is only when you and I have reached this point that you are able to say, I shall not want. Again, you have understood with me, we understand jointly, he does not begin with the pastures which signify the provision. 
He begins with Yahweh, which signifies the provider. You begin with the provider before you get to the provisions. But too many times people are saying, they're jumping to the I shall not want. They get there too quickly. What I want to be able to say to you is that the I shall not want deals not so much with the pastures, the provision, as it does with Yahweh, the provider. In other words, what he is saying is he's making an exclusive declaration that God is sufficient, that God is exclusive. There will be no supplements to, there will be no substitutes for. It's all about the Lord and the Lord alone. That is why I shall not want. It's not that he's saying that it's because of these pastures that I shall not want. It's because the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The way this is phrased, the sequence of the phrasing stands out. And now you and I then are saying, okay, if that's the case, if Yahweh, if the Lord is the exclusive owner of my life and I bear the markings, what are the reasons here for being able to say, I shall not want? I would argue this morning, and if you're watching online in the days to come, process this. There are four reasons in verses 2 and 3, each of which are going to be italicized on the screen, that begin with the pronoun he. Watch what comes our way. The first reason why I shall not want comes out of verse 2, the first part, where you and I are now told, he makes me lie down in green pastures. What stands out to us is that it is he who makes us lie down. That we do not choose on our own to lie down. He is the one that is causing his flock to lie down. And where is it that he causes them to lie down? And the answer is in green pastures. The reason why he has to force them to lie down is that by and large, sheep are restless. And they need to find their rest in relationship to their shepherd king. Now, Philip Keller in his book, uh, The Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm, identifies four reasons why sheep are not prone to lie down. First of all, they are not prone to lie down because of fear. If they're in a setting where there might be wolves or whatever, threats to their very existence, then the issue of fear will cause a restlessness. Bring it to 2022 living. I would argue then that when a culture or 
people or in individuals are finding a sense of restlessness within their own everyday life experience, it's because there is lurking within the heart some sense of fear. Furthermore, there's a sense of friction where the sheep just can't get along with one another. There is a budding order. It's true in all the various flocks, has been, is, will be. There's also the matter of, if you will, the sense of tormentors, the parasites, and so on, that embed themselves in the, soul, in the, in the wool. And then fourthly, the issue of hunger, fear, friction, tormentors, hunger. There's a restlessness. Back to Philip and Keller. I once owned a ewe whose conduct exactly typified this sort of person. She was restless. She was discontent. She was what we call in shepherding a fence crawler. We nicknamed her Mrs. Gadabout. This one ewe produced more problems for me than almost all the rest of the flock combined. No matter what field or pasture the sheep was in, she would search all along the fences or the shoreline we lived by the sea, looking for a loophole she could crawl through to start to feed on the other side. And it was not that she lacked good pasturage. My fields were my joy, my delight. No sheep in the district had better grazing. But you see, with Mrs. Gadabout, this was an ingrained habit. And unfortunately, the other sheep began to follow her. She was simply never content with things as they were. She forced herself into spots, making her way through fencing to graze on less than ideal pastures. And when I read that, I think of people, don't you? And you look at the discontent of our culture, the discontent in the restlessness of our society, and then you ponder how Paul was able to say in the Newer Testament he's learned to be content in whatever circumstances that he's in, and you see that this is something extraordinary here. And no wonder then that we need somebody who makes us to lie down in his lordship because on our own we'll just, we, on our own, we'll just continue to look for other pastures. And then we're wondering, why are we so weary? And why are we so angst-driven? Why are we so troubled? He has to take the lead he makes me lie down. And notice that he says here, he makes me lie down in the green pastures. Because when you are looking at this whole matter of the pastures, you have to contrast, you see, the green pastures from the brown pastures. You see this in the Middle East. I also saw this in Greece. And the wise shepherd is able to distinguish the best settings for pasturage, but furthermore understands the seasons for good grazing, that there are certain seasons 
where you know where good pastures are to be found and other pastures not. And you've got to stay ahead. You've got to be looking ahead to the next season and asking yourself, how am I going to guide the sheep to where good pastures will be found when drier conditions will prevail? At that point, I saw it in Greece, but you will see it in the middle in Israel as well. You will find that they'll begin to go closer to the coastline, the Mediterranean coastline, um, to be able to continuously sense, uh, here is where, where, the, where the food is found. And then he captures the essence of getting him to graze earlier in the morning because the dew is now upon the ground at that particular point. And that's the shepherd. That's why he's got to make one lie down. And then you're on to your second reason. Not only does he make me lie down in green pastures, the next reason, he leads me beside still waters. He leads. But notice that in what's interesting, it says still waters because sheep will not drink from running waters. What also fascinates me is that in the Hebrew, it carries with the idea of stilled waters, which tells me then that the shepherd has proactively gone ahead and evidently dammed up the water system so that the waters now are still so the sheep can then drink from these. Well, we need to get another sense, perhaps a, a picture of the waters, still waters compared to running waters. Pure waters compared to polluted waters. And this is a rather a large flock. But the shepherd's up to the task. He can handle the large as well as the small. He knows how to provide the necessary water. He knows how to provide the necessary food. For you see, sheep need to have a sense of hydration. Jesus would be positioned by a well. And understanding the whole idea of hydration, he engages a Samaritan woman wanting something to drink and then begins to talk about living water. And what he is doing at that point in John 4, and you see it again in John 10, describing himself as the good shepherd, is that he is pulling us into the agrarian culture and understanding the dynamic of Yahweh dynamically involved in your life. And now he is stilling the waters and he's leading you forward and he's allowing you to be nourished as you need to be nourished in a culture that is increasingly undernourished because they have not begun with Yahweh, you see. Now, once you've established the fact that he has been involved in getting ahead of everything and stilling the waters and then leading you forward to those waters, you're up to verse 3, and the third reason here why you do not want, because the third he stands out, he restores my soul. Now, it's critically important you pause here and understand what we're about to say. When I was in graduate school, I was close friends with a shepherd who would go on to get his PhD in New Testament and then go back to New Zealand to teach, but he was raised in a shepherding home. We spent a lot of time talking about the whole idea 
of shepherding. He would talk constantly about this whole challenge of sheep which are cast. And you say, Gary, what do you mean? In Psalm 42, verse 11, David cries out, Why are you downcast, O my soul? What's significant is that there's a great danger in sheep which are downcast. A cast sheep, according to Keller, is a pathetic sight. Listen to his words. Lying on its back, its feet in the air, it had become overly comfortable with its situation in life. The next thing you know, it's on its back. And it's flaying away frantically, struggling to stand up, but it cannot. It lacks the ability. Maybe the wool is too thick, the body fattened over time, not trim. He tells us that if the owner does not arrive on the scene within a reasonably short time, the sheep will die. Now, if one or two are missing, often the first thought to flash into mind is, one of my sheep is cast somewhere, I must go and search, set it on its feet again. This is why Jesus leaves the 99 for the one. There is a concern over the matter of the cast sheep. He writes, one particular ewe that I owned in a flock was notorious for being a cast sheep. Every spring when she became heavy in lamb, it was not uncommon for her to become cast every second or third day. Only my diligence made it possible for her to survive from one season to the next. It's not only the shepherd who keeps a sharp eye for the cast, but also the predators. Nothing seems to arouse, then, the constant care and attention to the flock as the flock, fact that even the largest, the fattest, the strongest, and sometimes the healthiest can be a casualty. Here's how it happens. A heavy, long-fleeced sheep will lie down comfortably in some little hollow, may row on its side, slightly stretched to relax. Suddenly, the center of gravity in the body shifts. It's now on its back, far enough that the sheep, the feet no longer touch the ground. Panic sets in. Gases begin to build up in the rumen. As they expand, they tend to re, to, if you will, stagnate and then cut off blood circulation to extremities especially the legs. And if the weather is hot, sunny, a cast sheep can die within hours. What to do? I would go out early, look out across the settings. If I saw black-winged buzzards circling overhead, I knew we were vulnerable. I would reach the cast you. I would pick it up. I would roll this sheep over. If she had been down for long, I would have to lift her onto her feet. And then straddling the sheep with my legs, I would hold her erect, rubbing her limbs to restore circulation. And then I would tend to say, when are you going to learn to stand on your feet? We are a culture 
that is unable to stand on its feet because we have not started with first things. He's giving you the reasons. The reasons are standing out. But when a culture becomes overly content, it can lead to what we call the downcast situation. And what we need is someone to come along and restore, which is a very important word in shepherding language. But now the fourth and the final reason. You're still in verse 3. He leads me. He leads me in the paths of righteousness, you see, for his name's sake. The fourth he. Again, Keller writes at this point, no other single aspect of the ranch operation for shepherds demands more careful attention than this moving of the sheep because you can you can exhaust the pasture you have to continuously lead and drive them into fresh range almost every day a pattern of grazing is worked out carefully in advance so that sheep do not feed on the same ground too long too frequently some shepherds set up a base camp fan out in wide circles always looking for new ways to help the the flock thrive. Don't despise new opportunities, new ways of doing new things, because what the shepherds call the sheep that fail to move forward, the nickname for them are the traditionalists, the ones that want to continuously graze day in, day out in the same setting until there's nothing left. He makes me lie down. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Restoration, think casting. He leads me in paths of righteousness. But mark this, for his name's sake. What is his name? First things. It's how he began. The Lord, Yahweh. And this is why Moses in the wilderness, before he heard the statement, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you, heard God simply say, I am who I am, the dynamic present in God. So a closing picture appears on the screen. It's the, it's the sister painting, if you will, of Joseph Farquhar. And here you now, you have it. He is leading the sheep forward. They are not meant to stand still. Life is meant to be moving forward. And the situation is less than ideal. The time of day is less than ideal. The conditions are less than ideal, snow-covered. But here's the shepherd, and he's making absolutely certain this congregation is moving ahead to be continued. Let's stand together. Father, we've only covered three verses 
and still only scratched the surface. But we see that here is David in a time of extraordinary upheaval in his life. Back in a wilderness type experience. And here he is in the second half of living, second half of his life. It seems as though he's having to once again deal with things that he thought was behind him. He still understands very carefully that before you get to the provision, you start with the provider. And here's David, the under-shepherd king, acknowledging Yahweh, the cosmic shepherd king. The Lord is my shepherd. Only then can he say, I shall not want. May that be true, Father of all of us. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.